Arvind, uh, thanks so much for agreeing to do this. Uh, I know it's not uh, the ideal format for anything, and it's always, it's always challenging to know what you can do in an interview that you can't do elsewhere. Um, but I, I hope we can, we can uh, get, get something out of this that, that, that will be uh, good for, for everyone. Um, the, the format that I thought we might go for is kind of an inverted version of Desert Island Discs, where uh, normally on, on that uh, BBC radio program, you would get to choose your favorite tunes, and then there would be some discussion in between them. But instead, uh, I've taken the, uh, the bold approach of being the interviewer, choosing some of my favorite tunes uh, for you to read, and, and then we will have some discussion about them in between. Um, the, the sort of theme that I thought might give some unity to our discussions is an aspect of your work that's always fascinated me, is that in so many different ways you always seem to work and think via triangulation. It's almost as if if you want to get from A to B, you always find some C to take a detour to get to B. Um, and, and it's that aspect of your work in all ways, as a poet, as a critic, and as a translator, because you've really, over the last 40 years, you know, become you know, a, an accomplished figure in all those fields um, that I thought we might try to touch on. Um, the, to begin with, so I thought maybe as a poet, uh, we would have, uh, if you could, uh, read from uh, your latest collection of poems, which is uh, Transfiguring Places from 1998. And the poem that I chose there, again, to try to touch on this notion of triangulation, is the one called uh, Borges. Uh, before reading this poem, uh, well, thank you for doing this uh, program. I just wanted to explain one reference in the poem, which uh, your listeners may not be familiar with it, it there is a reference to De Quincey mm -hmm. and but more particularly to De Quincey's Malay and it's a story from uh, Confessions of an English opium eater mm -hmm. and the story is that there was a, a man from Mal Malaysia who appeared in that village where De Quincey was staying, but the villagers didn't quite know what to make of this man because they couldn't understand his language. But De Quincey already had the reputation of being a scholar because he had so many books around him uh, in, his, uh, in, his, uh, in his house. So they took him to De, De Quincey and they hoped De Quincey will be able to understand what the Malay wanted. And De Quincey says that the easternmost language he knew was Greek. So he tried some Greek on him, which, uh, you know, which of course, uh, you know, he got him nowhere with the, with the Malay. And so De Quincey says, then I gave him a large sort of, I gave him a lump of opium, enough to kill six dragoons and their horses and sent him on his way. So, so that, you know, that, that is, and also there's a, I also refer to De Quincey because Borges was a great fan of De Quincey's work. Yeah, yeah. Borges, before the Ganges flows into the night, before the knife rusts, the dream lose its crescent shape, before the tiger runs for cover in your pages, Borges, I must write the poem. 
Insomnia brings lucidity, and a borrowed voice sets the true one free. Lead me who am no more than De Quincey's Malay, a speechless shadow in a world of sound, to the labyrinth of the earthly library. Perfect me in your work. Great. Thanks very much. Inevitably, you, you have guessed that it was the borrowed voice, yes. Uh, the, yes. the triangulation via Borges to your act of, or the act of writing that is described there that, that, that made me uh, uh, select that poem. Um, but it's also, it takes me back to a, a, a question I wanted to ask you in relation to that kind of triangulation in the 1960s. And, and a comment you made in, a, in an, another recent in, interview where you said, you know, discovering the uh, French and the Americans pound William Carlos Williams Ginsburg was for me a moment of liberation. And then you said, you know, my subjects do not lie in Europe or the United States, but I had first to make a detour to those places through their poetry to, to realize that my subjects lay nearer, nearer home, if not at home. The, the thing that I wanted to ask you about was, in a sense, the larger cultural dynamics for you. I mean, you know, we probably need to remind people that you are, a, you are the Midnight's Child, 1947. You're, you're a teenager in the 60s, coming into literature, poetry. And that whole process of, of triangulation, of discovering the Americans, of discovering the French, surrealism, various things that influenced you. And of course, the issue of inevitably, in that sort of immediate early post-colonial moment, continuing or deciding to write in English, that perennial question. Could you just have some sense of what, what you felt the, the, the background was there? In particularly because I, I'm having the back of my mind that, that wonderful magazine that you started called Damn You. And I, I was really interested in, uh, to know what sort of pressures you felt you were under, who that you might have been that you were wanting to damn at that point. You know, I'll, I'll this word that you use in the beginning, uh, and you've uh, uh, triangulation, uh, it's, it's not something that I was aware of, that I was making this, I was doing this triangulation or making this triangulation. Or uh, for a moment, I didn't even understand what was being meant when you used the word triangulation. It's only when you gestured with your hands and suggested you know, there was something elsewhere which you, a point outside which you used to get, then get back to a point closer to you that I could, I could get the points of the, of the triangle. Mm. And, uh, and now I begin, and now that you, you know, mention this, I begin to see what I was doing age 17 or 18 and why this triangulation happened. Why, why this triangulation was, was necessary. For someone like me, growing up when I did, born in 1947, I started writing in the mid-60s, so I was 15, 16, 17 years old. Now, when you're 17 years old and you're living in Allahabad, India, and you, and you want to write, what are the what are your, from, you know, what is the world from which you are coming? What is the, what is the literary world mm -hmm. out of which you are, you are writing? Yeah. What is the literary soil? Mm -hmm. What is the, we're going to 
plant this seed called, called writing. So what was my literary soil? It's, it's 19 years old or 18 years old, younger. I was 17 when I was an undergraduate at the University of Allahabad. Mm -hmm. So before me were the English sort of romantic poets. So, so and those are the ones you got from school? Huh? From school and from, and, from, and from university. Yeah. So you, one was reading you know, Wordsworth, Shelley, Keats. Mm -hmm. that, that, didn't, that didn't seem like soil enough in which I could plant anything. Mm -hmm. For one, I didn't know what a west wind was. I didn't know what, what autumn was. I didn't know what a skylark was. Yeah. I didn't know what a Grecian urn was. <clears throat> but this is an old problem with, you know, with all colonial societies where you where you're given texts to read. Mm -hmm. You understand half of it, you don't understand the other half. You could read Tintern Abbey, but neither Tintern nor Abbey meant anything to me. <laughs> you know, you could, but you could, you could get the poem. Yeah. There was no problem with understanding the, the still sad music of humanity. Yeah. Is that where the line, line appears? In, uh, exactly. so, so, but, but then Tintern Abbey was a, was a dead, dead loss. The other soil, the other alternative, where do I pitch my tent? Mm -hmm. It's that kind of. Uh, the other place was Indian literature. Mm -hmm. Now, at 19 or at that age, you're not aware of any Indian literature. All you are aware of uh, is probably Tagore, mm -hmm. or you may have been aware of a few other nationalist poets mm -hmm. who wrote in English. Mm -hmm. You were certainly not aware of any poets in the, in the Indian languages, mm -hmm. because the Hindi one was taught was, was medieval Hindi, mm -hmm. was, was Kabir and Surdas and you know, those Bhakti poets, but they didn't mean very much, mm -hmm. uh, partly because you know, it's, like, it's like giving a 17-year-old British uh, student uh, Middle English to read. Sure. You, you don't give them, you know. But you, but you did get Kabir at school. We did get Kabir at school. Yeah. We did get yeah. Kabir at school and I think, I think that wasn't a very good idea mm -hmm. to make you know, 11, 12-year-olds do, do medieval Hindi poetry. Yeah. So, so, one wanted to write, but one didn't have, one didn't have a language, mm -hmm. one didn't have a literary language. But into, into this situation arrive people like the American beat poets, mm -hmm. the French surrealists. So that kind of opened up that there are other ways of writing poetry, that there are other languages. And so that triangulation, I think, so, so I think what I'm trying to say there in the passage that you just read, in order to get to yourself, you have to go elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And you approach yourself through, through, that, through that detour, mm -hmm. through that triangulation, mm -hmm. or as, as what I say in Borges, is a borrowed voice sets the true one free. Yeah. But th that pattern only begins to emerge as we speak. And for me, yeah. little did I realize that it has been, it has been there all, all along. Mm -hmm. so, it's, it's a, so the strangulation that you're talking about uh, must have been there from the beginning. Mm -hmm. But then it needs someone looking at it from the outside who can see this pattern. Mm -hmm. So someone like me, uh, for me, I'm, you know, I'm just working the way, the way I work. Mm -hmm. I was not aware of this triangulation, mm -hmm. uh, of, this, of this detour, uh, till, till it was pointed out, even though I had been describing it myself, yeah. but without seeing the pattern that, 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 that it was making. 
So, so that, so I think that is one thing. So, this is the borrowed voice setting the true one free. Mm -hmm. That you ha you are reading the the British Romantic poets, but suddenly you get the American beats, you get the Penguin modern poets, mm -hmm. and you also get the Penguin modern European poets, can, more can, or less can, at can the I just same ask time. You how you, how you came across those? What 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 were the the kind of uh, the intermediaries who gave you access to that, where did well, you find them? Bookstores. Bookstores, book yeah. yes, it, absolutely. And, yeah. uh, uh, and this is in Allahabad? This, right? this is in Allahabad. Uh -huh. You walked, walked so into Penguin any bookstore. So European poets are in the, they, 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 yeah, they, yeah. they were available. Yeah, yeah, they were available. There was a very good book distributor, who, a, a publisher, Rupa and Company, mm -hmm. whose books are still, you know, they're still publishers. They, they've stopped importing Penguin books. We have since Penguin. You know, became pub uh, came into the country 25 years ago as publishers. Mm -hmm. But in the 60s, they were the main importers of Penguin, mm -hmm. Penguin uh, books, and they had been doing it since the 1930s or 1940s. Mm -hmm. And they had an office in Allahabad. So within weeks of months of the book being published, available in, in England, it was available uh, in in Allahabad. Mm -hmm. So uh, one could so I have that, so I have that whole set of Penguin modern modern poets right from the first issue to the first volume to I think 22, 23, 24. And so, so one educated oneself on that and they were very cheap, two and six, three and six. You know, that's, that's it. So, so that opened up possibilities of writing, that there were other ways of, of, of doing poetry. Mm -hmm. oh, and the, the same thing happened with the French surrealists. I don't know where I picked up Breton, but I, I, you know, I don't recall the exact title that I that I picked but but Ezra Pound was available mm -hmm. Ezra Pound was certainly available in in the in Faber anthologies mm -hmm. so that that was the other thing which was available to us right. Eliot's uh, se Pound selection yeah. was available for five shillings uh, uh, with his introduction and with yeah. uh, Pound's literary essays were available in, in this old sort of Faber Faber paperback mm -hmm. So, and these books were available on, on University Road, or they were available in other, you know, other, other bookshops. And did you, have, did you have a sense that that was, uh, that was specifically because of things going on in Allahabad, or was it quite widespread across India at that time? I think it was fairly widespread across India that these books were available uh, in, 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 all, in all the main educational centers, mm -hmm. uh, certainly. I, I, I would go to Bombay and I would see the same, same books. Mm -hmm. Maybe a few more titles when I, when I did go there and in Delhi. So one, one, one heard, of, heard of these things and one... Uh, so one was... That, that moment of triangulation, yeah. I think, was happened, happened quite early. Yeah. Uh, I sort of... I'd staked the ground, as it were, uh, even... And coming, coming to, to Damn You, the magazine which I started with two friends of mine uh, when I was an undergraduate, we were also exposed to the little magazine mm -hmm. uh, because a friend, uh, is an uncle of the of my friends, and you know, with whom I was editing Damn You, he lived in New York, and he sent us copies of the Village Voice, mm -hmm. where we read about this magazine called Fuck You, a magazine of the arts. Yeah. Now. In Allahabad, you couldn't get away with Fuck You, a magazine of the arts. So we called it Damn You, a magazine of the arts. But okay. what I found interesting about the little magazine scene, and even when I was doing this little magazine, I find this, I, I just still, I was thinking about it yesterday, that little, little magazines have an international perspective. It's the larger magazines, even today, mm -hmm. which, are, which seem limited in what, what they are doing. If you, if you look at 
uh, a little magazine even today in the United States. I'm sure they would be they would be more responsive to literature from around the world than let's say the New Yorker would be or, 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 or the Atlantic would be. So there's a kind of cosmopolitanism going on going below on, the mainstream. Yes, yeah. and, 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 and so, the, so, the, so the little magazine, what it did was that it opened up a lot of new American literature to us. Mm -hmm. Because once we started bringing out this magazine, we learned of other magazines on the little magazines network. And once you send out a few issues, they put you on their list. They, they, uh, they kind of have a list of magazines they, ha they, ha they have received. And similarly, you have a list of magazines that you have received. Mm -hmm. So by being on each other's list, then others started and our addresses would appear. So they would start sending more mag American magazines would arrive in the mail. Ours would go out to more magazines. Yeah. And so, you know, before in the, in about two or three years, we, we, we had a, we got magazines from, from England and from America primarily. Occasionally a university library like University College London would, would hear of this. And we would receive letters from librarians saying that they would be interested in subscribing to these magazines. Yeah. And I, and I think UCL still has the early issues of, of Damn You, yeah. as does the New York Public Library, as I was told recently. Um, uh, you mentioned Pound in, in what you were saying there, and maybe that, that's where we could move on to our second, our second reading, because also this, this process of triangulation, is, as much as it's affected you in your, own, in your own writing, in your own practice as a poet, it's also had, in a way, interesting effects uh, on how you've worked as a translator and what you've been drawn to. And I remember in some discussions that we've had in the past that uh, the collection, the, the Absent Traveller, your, your um, uh, translations from the, uh, the, the, uh, the Prakrit, uh, uh, where, you, where you engage with this 2,000-year-old uh, Gata Sapshati tradition um, and translate it. But, you know, which is, in, again, you, know, you were talking about getting Kabir at school, so all of this is, in, is part, of your, part of your background. But in a sense, it was... Reading Pound, uh, obviously, you, I, know, I know you were very, very inspired by and interested in, in Pound's imagism and, and that kind of uh, tradition. But it was reading Pound, in this case, the detour goes via Pound to make you go back to uh, the Prakrit poems, back to a 2,000-year-old tradition. And then, in a sense, that having that layered over by Poundian imagism led you to that, that, that act of translation, which I know started quite early. And then the collection came out initially with Ravi Dayal, not so in... 91, and then it became a Penguin Indian classic in, I think, 2008. So maybe what we could do now is just read a few of those poems and then just talk about that aspect of uh, your triangulation uh, moves. Well, these are, these are poems, as you've just said, they are they're 2,000 years old. They were written in a language called Maharashtri Prakrit. It's not a language that I know or can read or understand. But there are very good editions available uh, from Prakrit into Sanskrit, from Prakrit into Hindi. And it's some of these editions which I was using along with the tutor to unravel these poems. But before actually reading, the, reading, the, reading these poems, what I wanted to, I wanted to bring in Arun Kolatkar about whom we're going to talk. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, 
at some point during this uh, interview. And Arun Kolatkar was reading the Gatha Sapshati mm -hmm. in, in Bombay. In the, this is in the early, this is in the mid-70s. Mid, mid Right. And I, when I visited him, he was sitting with this book and uh, it was a Marathi translation of these Prakrit poems. And he read out a few to me. And the poem that he read out, which I, which I still remember, these are two-line poems. These are, they, they are like couplets or they are couplets. Mm -hmm. And the poem is about a lamp, an oil lamp which is sitting in the, on a shelf. It's actually in, a, in an alcove in the wall. And the lamp is watching a couple in bed. And, it, and the poem just says that the lamp is so engrossed in watching these two that it continues to look at them even after the oil is finished. <laughs> so just the flame is left and the flame is still watching what's going on mm -hmm. and there is no oil left in the lamp so so and he read out a few more but this was the this was one of the four or five poems that he read and i asked him about the book uh, I, I you know i saw the book it, it was in prakrit and marathi I, I knew neither language so there was no way i could read this book then i started to find out find out more about the gatha sapshati it was not in the days of you know pre google days so I had to go to the library, I had to go to the Sanskrit department when I returned to Allahabad from Bombay. So everyone said, yes, well, there is the Gatha Sapshati. And I, then I was able to you know, get hold of copies from the library and I slowly started to read these poems, basically to read them for myself. Mm -hmm. But then, as often happens with translation, you translate because you want to share the joy of reading mm -hmm. with others, because mm -hmm. you've had, you know, you've, the pleasures of the text and these are not pleasures which you want to keep to yourself these are pleasures that you want to share with others so this translation uh, you know as 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 with the kabir it's 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 to share something with with readers that you know i've enjoyed it so much maybe others will also so so these are these are dramatic poems in the gatha sapshati they it's it's uh, all of them involve men and women or a man and a woman it's all about love. They're highly erotic, but the eroticism is more in the suggestion mm -hmm. than in, in something, being actually, something being said. That's, you know, it's, what they are saying can be, can be very simple, but th th that, that simple statement can have, often carries a, an erotic charge. Mm -hmm. uh, the poems are spoken by women most of the time. There are very few poems spoken by men. Well, this is, this is one woman telling, telling a husband or her, or her lover. Bookish lovemaking is soon repetitive. It's the improvised style wins my heart. And there's a, there's a similar, this is, this is, this is a woman telling, telling her friend, He finds the missionary position tiresome and grows suspicious if I suggest another friend. What's the way out? A lot of the poems are about 
you know, a, a bystander, a passerby, observing something. The, the, the bystander or the passerby would, you know, will notice a man looking at a woman or a woman looking at a man. And, and then he'll comment on it, what he's seen. This is one of those poems, you know, it's, it's an observer. All he wants is see her armpit, so asks the garland maker the price of a string. And I'll read, I'll read one more. It's just a description. It's a, it's a description of a, of a path or a road. The rut way through the village, like a parting in its hair. Great. There was one thing I wanted to just pick up from this collection, the Absent Traveller collection. Um, and it's, it's something you raised at the, uh, well, you raised in the introduction in, in what, what you say um, in, the, in your translator's note. Um, it also sort of made me think of some of the aspects of, of Pound and so on. You, but you made this, I, I, just, I, I was just drawn to this really interesting and in a sense quite complex um, collocation where on the one hand you're saying about the poems you know, because of the, um, uh, the, the, the prakrit, the, the issues of the language, the specific language, you say, th you say, you make this claim, the language of poetry is not that of representation, nor does any language have a duplicate. You know, it raises that whole question of what's going on in, in, in poetic language and, and the whole problem of, of translating it. Um, but but in, the, in the point just before that, talking specifically about the, um, the character of these poems, you use this this wonderful phrase, talking about them, you say, the script of their images, the script of their images. And then you, you talk about this, the, the, the standard Gata uh, uh, images like cupped hands, a pregnant woman, a man staring. And you say, so the script of their images, like international signs that are understood everywhere, they hardly seem to need translators. That, that's a, I just really interested that there's this juxtaposition between the, the untranslatability in some ways of the language and, and those sorts of issues, but then there's also some sort of international sign system. And, you know, th there was one thing, I remember you, you've mentioned it to me in the past, the, the issue of uh, how international is that? Because you, 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 you mentioned the one thing about the bangle on a, on a woman's arm. And, and uh, it, it seemed to me that in a way, actually, you needed to know rather quite a lot about very culturally specific things to be able to grasp that. But I wonder if you could just talk you a little know, bit about that distinction between the, the images of the script and the, and the language. You know, where, where I, I think where I got this idea from about the image and the translatability of the image is from Auden's introduction to Kavafi. Uh -huh. It's one of the early translations of Kavafi. Uh, if he... I think the essay is available in, it's either in forwards and afterwards or, or the dyer's hand. Mm -hmm. And Odin says that there are so many translations of Kavafi, or Kavafi is easy to translate because he uses images. Mm -hmm. And images are easier to translate than, than music. You can't translate the music of the language, but you can translate the images. Right. And I think something of that sort, so when I was looking at these poems, 
So I was coming at it not, not through, just through pound, mm. but also through that Auden statement that these would be easy to translate mm -hmm. because they work on images. Right. And, and, and they work on speech and they work on, uh, uh, on uh, man-woman relationship, yeah. which again is a universal sign. Only a sure. few, what I'm trying to, what I'm also trying to say is that between men and women, only a few moves are possible. Yeah. Only a few things can happen, only a few gestures can be made. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. Not, it's, not, it's not limitless. Yeah. Hands can touch, words can be said. Mm -hmm. But more than that, it, it becomes variations on, 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 on a few things. And that is, I think, what I meant by these international signs. Mm -hmm. That uh, these poems could be read anywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, but at the same time, certain gestures or certain moments can be culture-specific. Mm -hmm. they, they may not translate as easily. I'm saying you would, you would need a, a footnote. And one of those images, though it is an image, but outside the tradition of Prakrit and Sanskrit poetry, that image may not be legible. Mm -hmm. So, and one such image is the bangle slipping from the hand. Very often, someone will make a comment on the bangle, look, the bangle slips from a hand. And the bangle slipping from the hand is what, is try, what she's trying to, the person is trying to say is, that she's pining for her lover or for her husband. She's grown thin. And because of she's lost so much weight, the bangle slips from her hand. Mm -hmm. Great. So that, that makes it, so uh, there, are, there are moments when you need to explain certain things. But I think by and large, the poems can be understood mm -hmm. without recourse to, 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 to footnotes. Yeah. So I think that is what drew me to these poems. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, it's in the sense that they are, that I'm talking about that their accessibility. So that accessibility is both at the level of theme, which is the man-woman relationship, mm -hmm. and access, accessibility at the level of their being image-based. Yeah. Yeah. So that is, that is the... Um, you, you know, you've, you've done a, a lot of uh, translating work. You've also written, interestingly, uh, about translation in all sorts of ways, in the introductions and so on. And the, the most, most recent one came out last year, 2011, is, is your Songs of Kabir, um, where you did uh, uh, um, go back to those poems from that you, you, as you said earlier on, that you were there with you from your school days um, and, and revisit them. Um, I wondered maybe we could just read a few uh, of, uh, of those poems first and then and discuss them. And particularly, I suppose one of the things I would like to pick up on uh, and to go a little bit beyond uh, these poems in that way, but there's a, there's a particular American idiom in some ways that you pick up in, the, in, in your, the version of English that you translate them into. And there's also a number of American references in those wonderful notes and, and epigraphs and things that you attach to the poems, which you can also talk about, but, but part, of, part of what I wanted to maybe talk about once we've read them is, is in a sense, uh, the wider sense of, of, of a, what America meant for you as well, partly because you lived there for a certain period. But maybe we could first begin by a few, reading a few things from Songs of, Ka Songs of Kabir. Well, the first, I'll, I'll read out, I'll read out uh, two poems. The first one is, a, is what is called an upside down poem. 
where everything appears, where everything comes as being the opposite of what it, it usually is. So these poems are, are difficult, they are all image-based. The, the topsy-turviness is the topsy-turviness of the, of the images. And, but the, the topsy-turviness is the topsy-turviness of the images, which leads to difficulty in quite understanding what is being hinted at in these poems. So they can be interpreted in different ways. And this poem is precisely about the difficulty of interpretation. So you get a, a stream of images and then Kabir almost asks you, what does this mean? Brother, I've seen some astonishing sights. A lion keeping watch over pasturing cows. A mother delivered after her son was. A guru prostrated before his disciple. Fish spawning on treetops. A cat carrying away a dog. A gunny sack driving a bullock cart. A buffalo going out to graze, sitting on a horse. A tree with its branches in the earth, its roots in the sky. A tree with flowering roots. This verse, says Kabir, is your key to the universe, if you can figure it out. I'll read, I'll read another poem, which is, a very, which is a very different poem from the one I've just read. And it has an epigraph, which is from this American blues singer, Led Belly. It take a man that have the blues to sing the blues. Oh, Pandit, your hair splitting's so much bullshit. I'm surprised you still get away with it. If parroting the name of Ram brought salvation, then saying sugarcane should sweeten the mouth, saying fire burn the feet, saying water slake thirst, and saying food would be as good as a belch. If saying money made everyone rich, there'd be no beggars in the streets. My back is turned on the world. You hear me singing of Ram and you smile. One day, says Kabir, all bundled up, you will be delivered to Deathville. Great, thanks very much. Uh, um, Arvind, the, the, um, yeah, clearly as we're getting from those poems, both the the references to lead belly, the, the language itself, uh, and as we've spoken about it before, you know, all the American poets that influenced you in the 60s as well, America meant an enormous amount to you, uh, its literary traditions, its poetic traditions in particular. But at one, at one point also, in fact, you lived there from, from 1971 to 73, not yes, so, yes, in, in yes, Iowa City. Yes. What, what do, would you comment on the sort of the America of your, of your mind, as it were, of the literary landscape versus the America that you lived in, because you, you, you eventually decided you couldn't live there anymore and you, went and you had to go back to India. You felt you had to go back to India, but, but what, 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 what was the experience like of the, of the, the actual America, if you like? No, there, there, there are two things. One is the America of the imagination and then the America of... Uh, the country in which you are, which you arrive, uh, and and live there for a few years. The, the, so the America of my imagination was started when we started Damn You, a magazine of the arts, 
and you had built up an idea of America, of American poetry. So for, for five or six years, you know, you, you had this, you almost thought you were an American poet, even though you were living not in America, but you were living in India. But in 1971, when I was 24 years old, uh, I was invited to the International Writing Program, which was started by Paul Engel, who had earlier started the, the Writers' Workshop in Iowa. And, but after he retired from the workshop, he started the writing program where he invited writers from all over the world to spend nine months in Iowa City. So suddenly here was this Indian-American poet, myself. I found myself in the United States of America. I found myself in Iowa City in the thick of American poetry. And then I suddenly realized as, you know, as the weeks passed that I didn't want to become an American poet, uh, that I, I, was far, I was better off being an American poet in India than being an American poet in America, because in America I would never be the American poet, I would always be the Indian poet in America. Yeah. And I didn't want to be the Indian poet in America. Yeah. And that is so, I, I stayed there for two years. After nine months were, were over, I asked Paul Engel if I could extend my stay, and he, and he, and he agreed. So uh, they, were, they didn't invite a writer the second year. Uh, so they, they, they just extended my, my stay there. But after those two years, once those two years were, were over, and I'd, I'd made up my mind that for good or ill, I'd, I had to return to India. And whatever, I was 26 when I came back. And I didn't have much of an idea what I was going to do or you know, how my career would develop as a poet. I, I had not written any criticism. I had not edited any anthologies. I'd barely done any translations. I'd written a few poems. But I knew this much that I couldn't live through those winters and, and write. Because I realized that the things I wrote about were in India. And I might as well be back there and write about them mm -hmm. than live elsewhere and write about them. Mm -hmm. I think that's what. And I, and I did meet a couple of Indian poets, at least one Indian poet, who, who cut a rather sort of sad figure. He was, he was neither accepted by the Americans, people in India didn't know him. And it, it was a kind of in-between figure. And, 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 and I didn't want to become like him. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I didn't want to be this, this Indian poet in the Midwest. And, uh, and, 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 and I couldn't see myself fitting into any, any, uh, into any story of American poetry. Mm -hmm. And this was long before, you know, we, we had uh, emigre writers and we have these poets. We had, you know, we didn't have those kinds of things in the, in the, in the early 70s. They were just American poets. Mm -hmm. There was Ramanujan at the University of Chicago, yeah. who had published one book, but people hardly knew him as a as a poet. They always they always you know thought of him, and they, they still know him as a as a folklorist, as a as an indologist, as a translator from the Tamil classics. Very few in America know him as a know him as a poet. So, so, so and I've never regretted that decision. So for me, being in America, imagining America and being actually being there were two entirely different things. Yeah. And I'd still rather imagine my America than, than live there. Um, I, I just love the, the fact that in a sense you've got, a, you've got a wonderful turn on the notion of the emigre poet because 
You know, you can imagine Beckett or Joyce escaping Ireland because they want to escape their Irishness uh, in certain ways, and or at least narrow forms of Irishness. And there's a, there's, a, there's a lovely irony about the fact that actually, you know, the trouble is when you go to a place like America or you go somewhere else, you can actually, it's there that you're forced to be the Indian poet. Yes, exactly. <laughs> whereas, in, whereas in India, back in India, you could, you could get away with being an American poet. <laughs> Uh, that's a, that's, that's a yes, exactly. That, yeah. that, that's exactly true. You know, you, yeah. can, you can pretend to be an American poet in India, yeah. but you can't pretend <laughs> to be anything but an Indian poet. Exactly. You know, very, exactly. Yeah. exactly. Um, uh, Arvind, the, la the last thing I, I wanted to uh, turn to is, 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 a, is a, a really, I mean, it, it, at the back of my mind here is a, is a f you know, wonderful um, a critical essay of, uh, of yours that you wrote. Um, uh, uh, the, the Emperor Has No Clothes, which is, which is uh, Amit Chaudhary's uh, reprinted in his uh, Picadol book of, um, uh, of modern Indi Indian uh, literature. Um, and it, one of the things that struck me most about that essay was you um, arguing against certain models of multilingualism, and particularly these were models of multilingualism that were you know, being uh, promoted in India by other critics in, in the 60s and 70s, where, and you have this, you, you make this great distinction, and I know you make use of a bit of uh, George Steiner's After Babel, where you make this distinction between a, a kind of geological strat, strata-based model of multilingualism, where in a sense your, your first language, or what used to be called your mother tongue, is, is, is somehow at the bottom of everything and then everything else gets layered on top in some sort of geological formation. And in contrast to that, you, you say, no, the, the, the multilingual experience is much more osmotic. It's about osmosis. It's, it's not about solid things. It's also about water and fluidity and movement in that way. And, and one of the, uh, the, the moments at which this seems to become you know, starkly aware is, is uh, apparent is um, in those, those wonderful, well, at, it's, it's the one poem, Three Cups of Tea. This is a Kolatka poem uh, from your collected poems uh, of Arun Kolatka, which uh, uh, Blood Axe has brought out um, uh, in 2010, not so, just, just very recently. Um, and I wondered if, if well, we, maybe we, again, we could read them a little bit first. Um, Read, read the two versions of the poem that you have at the end of the collection, and maybe also just the sort of concluding paragraph of the essay uh, that you, you, you uh, um, where you talk about them. The essay is called "What Is an Indian Poem," and then maybe just come back to that notion of 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 the models of the osmotic and the the, the geological. This poem was written by written in in Bombay Hindi. The original is not in Marathi, it's not English, the two languages in which Arun Kolatkar wrote. But these poems written in the early 60s, they were, these are actually found poems. Mm -hmm. They are snatches of conversation which he picks up in a speakeasy. I think it was during the days of prohibition. And he would, uh, and he would sit there with his drink, but he was always picking up these these bits of conversation going on around him. It's 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 just about men bragging or talking about their lives, or you know, just saying some very ordinary things. But the minute you take it out of that context of a speakeasy and put it on the page, 
and they're completely transformed. And the language, the language is is this Bombay Hindi, but it's, it's splattered with English words. And uh, this is what I say in the essay that if you if you forget the uh, forget the the Bombay Hindi words and just look at the English words, you can you can you can you know it it it'll it it'll appear like a Greek fragment mm -hmm. that only a few things are 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 present, but the rest of the the rest of the words are missing. So over here, the English words you can pick up. The readers will or the listeners will be able to get our manager, company, rule, table, police, complaint. मैं मैनेजर को बोला मुझे पगार मांगता है. मैनेजर बोला कंपनी के रूल से पगार एक तारीख को मिलेगा. उसकी घड़ी टेबल पे पड़ी थी. मैंने घड़ी उठा के लिया और मैनेजर को पुलिस चौकी का रास्ता दिखाया बोला अगर कंप्लेंट करना है तो कर लो मेरे रूल से पगार आज ही होगा एंड दिस इज कुलाटकर ट्रांसलेशन ऑफ इज ऑफ द पोएम आई वॉन्ट माई पे आई सेट टू द मैनेजर यूल गेट पेड द मैनेजर सेड बट नॉट बिफोर द फर्स्ट डोंट यू नो द रूल्स Coolly, I picked up his wristwatch that lay on his table. Wanna bring in the cops? I said. According to my rules, listen, baby. I get paid when I say so. Now, as you will see over here, he's 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 moving between three languages. He's he's doing Bombay Hindi, he's he's doing English, and he's doing American English. Yeah. and this is the layering you know this is one language superimposed on another and then then a third language and all three three languages coming from the same poet it's not so as someone else who, who if someone else had translated this poem he may not have got the american he may, he may have translated it without the americanisms mm -hmm. but when kolhatkar translates it he he substitutes the bombay hindi with the american idiom mm -hmm. and this is i think this is partly because we in india don't have a spoken register you see the in, in, over here in, in britain it's it's cockney which is which is you know which has been standardized mm -hmm. as when you want to do a different register voice, yeah. as a vernacular voice yeah. america has has its you know it's we are all familiar with that through through music and through 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 literature in India, if you, you there, there is no uh, there is no vernacular, there is no demotic, and so if I if someone else were to translate this poem, they wouldn't know what to make of it, or they would certainly not go as far as Kolatkar has gone. Mm -hmm. But he does this over and over again. Whenever he wants to bring in the spoken idiom, whether it's in his notes, uh, uh, which he writes to himself and which I've reproduced in this book. or it's in his uh, in his english poems mm -hmm. whenever he wants to use to get the spoken idiom he 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 goes for the american mm -hmm. as he, as he as he does over here so th so this is these are three languages this is and but this is not what i what i meant when i was writing that that essay you referred to at the uh, in the beginning the emperor has no clothes what there what i was fighting against was this notion of indianness mm -hmm. which somehow got linked to the mother tongue yeah 
and it's my it's 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 and that i found very strange mm -hmm. that why should and how does this indianness how does indian indianness in poetry in english express itself well according to some it expresses itself by your using referring to indian mythology indian gods mm -hmm. using indian forms perhaps or it expresses itself by reference to indian mythology and but i found that a very crude which is your, your geological model that mm. you were referring to mm. because things have to be a little more interesting if you have if you know another language if you are bilingual or trilingual in many cases as happens in india you can certainly everyone who whether they write in english or they write in hindi or write in bengali most indian writers are bilingual mm -hmm. the very few who are who don't read any don't have any english i don't know a single one i don't know of a single indian writer of the last in the last 50 years who did not read english mm -hmm. so the question now is what is that english doing to the bengali mm -hmm. and similarly for those who write in english what are the indian languages that they are familiar with which they know which they you know known from their childhood doing to their english mm -hmm. and is are those languages putting some pressure on their english is there what is the relationship between mother tongue and and english mm -hmm. if you are writing in english and i was just unhappy with this whole idea that and then it gets also attached to this idea of you know a value starts getting attached to whether you have a mother tongue or you don't have a mother tongue mm -hmm. are you using those images or or, or those stories or those uh, myths or you are not using them are you too europeanized mm -hmm. in in that sense so we get into a simple a simple model of you're either authentic in some way or you're inauthentic it's that kind of distinction uh, that distinction comes in because yeah. if you are, if you are, if you have a mother tongue you're using the mother tongue you're making the use of the mother tongue obvious in your references then you are more authentic than someone who is not using any of that and so that was my that was my problem with the with the model and in in george steiner's after babel and especially extraterritorial I, I you know when he talks of russian and and uh, and english in when he refers to nabokov mm -hmm. or borges and spanish and english mm -hmm. and what is how is borges's spanish different from the spanish of other spanish writers because of the of the english putting pressure on his on his spanish mm -hmm. and what is russian doing to uh, nabokov syntax mm -hmm. and uh, that made me think that maybe english are indian the indian languages that that we know arun kolatkar's marathi my hindi jant mahapatra's odia what are these languages doing to our to the english that we use yeah. and perhaps that may be a more interesting way of looking at at the at the multilingual imagination yeah. than a simple geological model yeah and ge I mean, in, in a sense it would also work if you just took a language like bengali and thought about the persian and urdu influences on bengali There's the, the, those sorts of issues. There's other those sorts of pressures are going on in 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 all languages in some way. Yes, no, no, absolutely. You know, yeah, yeah. it's so the, the, this 
Adil Jaswala has a phrase that there are all these languages crawling inside inside my head. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So you may know one language, but there are all these other languages as well. Mm -hmm. Especially if you live in a city like Bombay, yeah. you would you would be hearing three or four languages mm -hmm. in the in the street. And, and of course, in a sense, here we're talking in a sense in a, in a it's, it feels like a fairly tame literary critical context. But these issues that we're talking about in terms of language and identity and so on can play out fiercely in, 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 in the, the wider public sphere in terms of people fighting over what would be considered a, a certain sort of identity and recognizing it via language. So these, these things have implications beyond, beyond well, the poem or... Do, well, you know, the, the way it plays out in, in Indian literature in English and you know, when we think of Indian literature and the, the position occupied by English is that all of literature written in English in India is still and, and, and quite often dismissed as inauthentic mm -hmm. for the sheer fact of being written mm -hmm. and for being written in English. So it's a, it's a very deeply entrenched position mm -hmm. that some have taken. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's another matter that this position is, is not particularly of, it's of very little interest to people in India. Mm -hmm. This nativist position is of great interest to people outside India. Yeah. So people outside India, the, the, the Western Academy has been bullied into, into mm -hmm. Thinking that, yeah. that the authentic Indian writer is writing is, is writing in is writing in Bengali, mm -hmm. or is writing in, in Uriya, or is writing in Marathi. It is the less authentic writer who is writing in who is writing in English. Mm -hmm. But 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 this plays it, it doesn't play out so much there. And also, I think the other reason is 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 the is is economic. Mm -hmm. I think the Indian writers who write in English, some of them make so much money that when you know when people in india yeah. look look back they think that something must be wrong with this uh, yeah, yeah. way of uh, way of writing yeah. so it, not only are they inauthentic but they are selling their inauthenticity yeah. to 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 others to more to more gullible people you know in the west yeah. who are who are picking all this up arundhati uh, arundhati roy's novel was uh, an example of that yeah. uh, one one person one critic got up and said that with the money advances, the advance she's received, the money she's got, she could buy up all of Hindi publishing. <laughs> you know, so, the, yeah. so one, one novel by Arundhati Roy is worth all of Hindi publishing yeah. in terms of, so that is the kind of... In cash terms. Hmm? In cash terms. In, in cash terms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, 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 but these, are no, these are not literary discussions at all yeah, you know sure. they become they, we get into the literary marketplace in mm -hmm. a very crude sort of way mm -hmm. yeah. but again it's it's very unhelpful to use these terms it doesn't help us to read look at a piece of literature yeah, yeah. and then we, which is the other thing that i have against it yeah it's it, it you know it, it, it doesn't get you anywhere mm -hmm. in terms of understanding what is on the page yeah but it's in a sense also what the what your osmosis model as an alternative talks about much more complex exchanges. Yeah, I, I think, you know, if you look at it slightly differently, it's, it's more, there, more, there may be more interesting ways of looking at this. And that, that's where the example of osmosis uh, struck me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this, the boundaries between literatures and languages, they are, they are porous. 
And if the boundaries between literatures, if those boundaries are porous, then the boundaries between languages are, are even more porous. Mm -hmm. Because languages, languages are porous. Yeah. Languages, you know, a language like English. I'm sure the number of Hindi words or Indian words in the English language. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they're simulated the number of English words in, uh, in contemporary Hindi. Mm -hmm. So much so that there is a new language called Hinglish, mm -hmm. especially in advertising uh, uh, and in uh, you know, uh, commercial jingles mm -hmm. on television. Yeah. So languages are the, are the least pure of, of, of things which we, mm -hmm. which we use. Mm -hmm. now, and, yet, and yet there are many forces out there that are trying to define them as pure. Exactly. Or so, uh, pure the, versions, yeah. I, that's, that contradiction is something which I've not been able to understand because the language mm -hmm. you are using Hindi, but that Hindi that you are using that that is hardly that is hardly untouched by, by you know by by other languages. Mm, mm -hmm. So how can using another language? Mm -hmm. In a sense, multilingualism is in is in is, all is, languages. All languages. Multilingual are multilingual, is yeah. inherent in the nature of language. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. there may be there should be another more interesting way of looking looking yeah. at this. So multilingualism is not is is the ultimate form of authenticity multilingualism <laughs> is the yeah absolutely <laughs> yeah. absolutely yeah. <laughs> that's the only form of authenticity yeah, yeah. there is yeah. no other form that we well, have maybe, maybe when we, we think should, of language maybe we should even even yeah for some of the issues that i've been thinking about maybe we should even not use the word multilingualism that suggests even that's to divide it up little bits and pieces it is, but interlingualism it, yeah, is, it, the, it is, is the authentic it is, state. It, yeah. is, it is, yeah, it is, it is language. It yeah. is just, it is simply, yeah. and it is, and it is mixed up. Yeah. It, you know, it's, uh, yeah. So we, we actually are all living in Finnegan's Wake, but, but also in a sense, we, we're living in those poems, but maybe, maybe we could end by just reading out, uh, in, especially in the light of what we've just been talking about, your, your last paragraph, where you just sum up that, uh, that point about uh, the Kolatka poems. I think brilliantly. You know, three cups of tea first appeared in Salim Piradena's anthology, Contemporary Indian Poetry in English, in 1972. The anthology was the first to represent the new Indian poetry in English, and three cups of tea has been part of the canon since. I don't have a date for when Kolarkar made the translation, but I suspect it was made after 1965 after his discovery of Harold Noss's Belly, the Italian poet, or the, the poet who wrote in Roman, I think, mm -hmm. yeah. 19, early 19th century, Belly and the demotic American that Harold Noss employs to translate Romanesco. If you want to be funny, it's enough to be a gentleman. So there it is, your Indian poem. It was written in a Bombay Patwa, which I've called Bombay Hindi, by a poet who otherwise wrote in Marathi and English. It then became part of two literatures, Marathi and Indian English, but entered the latter, which is Indian English, in a translation made in the American idiom. One of whose sources, or if you will, inspirations, was an American translation of a 19th century Roman poet. Great. Arvind, thanks so much. It's been a real pleasure.